Hi, this is Alan Chartok. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Warren Farrell. Dr. Farrell is the author of The Boy Crisis with co-author John Gray. The book exposes the boy crisis worldwide as well as the causes and solutions that can be implemented by parents, schools, and policymakers. Dr. Farrell has been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. His books are published in over 50 countries and in 20 languages. They include the two award-winning international bestsellers, Why Men Are the Way They Are, plus The Myth of Male Power. Warren was a pioneer in the women's movement as the only man elected three times to the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City. He's currently chair of the Coalition to Create a White House Council on Boys and Men and a pioneer in the men's movement. Dr. Farrell's books contribute to 12 disciplines. A book on couples communication, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, was a selection of the Book of the Month Club. His father and child reunion has inspired many dads to be more involved with their children. And Why Men Earn More, the startling truth behind the pay gap and what women can do about it, was chosen by U.S. News and World Report as one of the top four books on careers. Warren has taught in the university level in five disciplines, has appeared on more than a thousand TV and radio shows. He's been interviewed by Oprah, Barbara Walters, Peter Jennings, Katie Couric, Larry King, and Charlie Rose. He's been featured repeatedly in the New York Times and in the Wall Street Journal. He has two daughters and lives with his wife in Mill Valley, California, and virtually at www.warrenfarrell. Farrell is spelled F-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. We'll talk more with Dr. Warren Farrell about all of this and much more. But first, welcome, Warren. It is such a pleasure to be connected with you again, Alan. How did we meet each other? We met each other in graduate school when you were at Eagleton Institute, I believe it was. And uh, we um, had dinner together with your wife and my former wife at the time. And that was about... Uh, about 50 years ago or something like that. When you can start to talk about things that happened 50 years ago, that's scary. That's really scary. <laughs> it's scary for both of us, isn't it? <laughs> Warren, you have certainly become the, the expert on this issue. And this book, Boy Crisis, the question is, what is the boy crisis? Basically, it's boys struggling. Sperm counts have gone down on average around the world and in the United States. Their IQs have gone down. They are behind girls on every single academic subject now, according to the UN's studies internationally of the, of the 84 largest developed countries. Um, and boys are behind in this, on all 63 of the major developed countries. And they're behind in reading and writing, and which are the two biggest predictors of success. In particular, having problems with mental health. So, for example, when boys and girls are uh, 9, 10 years of age, uh, they commit suicide very minimally and at the same rate. But between the ages of 10 and 14, boys are twice as likely to commit suicide as girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, four times as likely. And uh, between the ages of 20 and 24, almost five and a half to six times as likely. And uh, we see this with the opioid crisis when Jerome Powell was on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. He said that a young male's not looking for work and being addicted to drugs, uh, particularly with the opioid crisis where boys die from overdose at a two-to-one rate in relation to girls and are not preparing boys in the United States for a good transition to technology. We don't have the vocational education that we that many countries have, like Japan, uh, which allow the boys to who are non-academic to have a sense of purpose and a sense of being able to be employed. Uh, we haven't we haven't kept up in that area. Uh, we're cutting back on things like recess when we know that boys need physical activities in order to be productive. Uh, we aren't hiring male teachers, so oftentimes boys are going from female-only homes to female-only schools, and we then wonder why they seek a gang leader or a drug dealer as an authoritarian role model. And so um, in so many areas, our sons are falling behind. And what is amazing is that we aren't noticing it. People like Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, did notice it, but he's the only major political figure that has spoken up about this. So Warren Farrell, you started with sperm count. That really caught my attention. How come the sperm count is going down in, in males? Probably the sperm count has more to do, uh, first of all, we don't always know all the reasons why, but the sperm count apparently has more to do with our uh, environment. We dump a lot of plastics into the water. The water, the plastics leach phthalates. 
phthalates mimic estrogen that speeds up the uh, maturity of girls and delays the maturity of boys and has an impact on the sperm counts of all the fish, which is being found in almost every significant stream area around the country and many lakes like Lake Apopka. The sperm counts of the fish are going down. Their ability to produce sperm is um, much more minimal. Look, let's face facts. Almost everybody in the year of Me Too are talking about women being oppressed. But you're making an argument that we're making mistakes with males also. We're making huge mistakes with males, and the whole concept of oppressed versus oppressor is a real mistaken evolution of our thinking. So, for example, I was part of the women's movement, as you know, and on the board of NOW in New York City. And what the mistake that we made is that we evolved from the civil rights movement, where there clearly was an oppressor and an oppressed. And then many of us were Marxist feminists in the early days, and that came from a you know Marxist perspective of the oppressor and the oppressed. And we took that Marxist and and civil rights perspective, and then we move that over to the thinking about men and women, and that's where we miss the boat. We said men, oh, we make more money than women do, and then we assumed it was for the same work, when in fact it wasn't for the same work. It was dads that earned more money than moms do, and the dads made more money than moms do because when children were born, the dads would take off and leave the jobs that they may have loved to have done, like being a teacher or being a musician, and they They did jobs that earned more money so they could support their children and they would have margin for error in case something went wrong and their wives would have decent homes and mortgages and they'd live in good neighborhoods where they had good schools. And so dads often sacrificed in their careers, even as moms sacrificed their careers. But neither the belief that we were lived in a world dominated by a patriarchy creates a misunderstanding. We didn't live in a world dominated by a patriarchy per se. We lived in a world dominated by the need to survive. And to survive, women raised children, men raised money. Our parents didn't say, I have the right to this or the right to that. They taught their children to have obligations and responsibilities. And boys' obligations included the obligation every generation had its war. And and the parents told the boy they'd be proud of them if they served in this war, and they would be disappointed if they were unwilling to serve in this war. They'd be a coward. And so we prepared our boys to be willing to die so that women would have female privilege, that they would be able to live and be at home and take care of the children. We allowed our wives to be able to be focused on love while we were focused on killing and being killed. And killing and being killed is a sacrifice. It's not a privilege. But we framed it as a privilege to be able to serve our country. And that's all good and well, but it's not, it's not an oppressor role. Oppressors don't die so somebody else will live. Warren Farrell, we were both around during Vietnam. An awful lot of men said, no, hell no, I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. So it wasn't as if each of those people were warriors. They were people who were, you know, those males were people who had great courage, I thought. Yes, I think that's exactly correct. I mean, you and I were both, at least I was, and I think you were too, Mm -hmm. opposed to the war in Vietnam. And we were trying to get conservatives to expand the definition of patriotism from being able to go to the war, which was one way of being patriotic. But another way of being patriotic is to say our way of looking at this is going to contribute more positively to our country than going to war. And so we were fighting for peace rather than war. And so we have both Conservatives and liberals tend to sort of make their perspective uh, the right perspective. We as liberals tend to say things like um, we're progressive. Calling ourselves progressive is an extremely self-righteous term. It suggests that anybody that doesn't agree with us is is regressive, just like the conservatives that call themselves patriotic were also being self-righteous, saying that anyone that disagreed with them was not being patriotic. Well, Warren, there'll be women, some women, who are listening to this right now, who will say, come on, Farrell, you know, why are you seeming to side with men against women? Because this is a uh, oppositional world in which men have been exploiting women for all this time, and you, sir, are helping them do that. I would say that I I just disagree. I think that um, when it comes to men and women, we're all in the same family boat. When only one sex wins, both sexes lose. 
Every mother that I know wants her son to have a good life and to be happy and to be healthy. But very few of us realize that historically speaking, um, in order for our sons to be proud of themselves and for us to be proud of our sons, we trained our sons to be willing to be disposable, disposable in war and disposable in the workplace. As you know, 93% of the people who die at work in the hazardous jobs are males. And in, in Japan, they have a game called Kuroshi. Kuroshi means death at the desk. And the people who play the game, they all try to compete to get to the top of the ladder. And this is the economic ladder, to earn more money and to have more status than anybody else. The person who gets to the top of the ladder first commits suicide because they understand, the young people in, in Japan understand, that climbing to the top of the ladder without asking, is this the place where you want to go? Is this your sense of purpose? Is this who you are? Climbing to the top of the ladder is a series of social bribes that tell you you're going to be more powerful, you're going to have more status if you climb to a, the top of a ladder that you haven't even asked whether you were interested in selling insurance or, or doing technology or doing something that makes more money or gets more status. Uh, than something else. And so this is something I think that we have to think, that there's a, a gap here between heroic intelligence. Heroic intelligence was intelligence for a short life, to be disposable in war, versus health intelligence. And almost every mother I know wants their son to also have health intelligence and at the same time being respected. And health intelligence is obviously intelligence for a long life, and it's intelligence for, that includes emotional intelligence. And so all of us who want our sons to have emotional intelligence so that when we approach a woman, we'll approach her in a way that's sensitive and caring and loving. These are the types of things we want for our sons. And I, I don't know many moms out there that don't want this for our sons, but yet at the same time, there are very few people that are getting the messages, the mixed messages we're saying to our sons. On the one hand, you know, we're saying, we're, you know, we're going to the football game and saying first and 10, get a concussion again, or, you know, or, um, you know get that touchdown, which is basically risk a, your life and risk a concussion again. And so we're, we're telling our sons to be the hero. Uh, we're saluting them if they're Marines and firefighters and so on and first responders. But these are all things that we're saluting and acknowledging our sons for, for risking their health to become, let's say, a really good Marine, you don't learn to express your feelings. You learn to repress your feelings. To become a CEO, you learn to repress your feelings, not express your feelings. And so when I wrote The Boy Crisis, what I realized is that there's so many mixed messages we're saying to our sons. And the real problem with the mixed messages is that no one even knows that we're sending mis mixed mm. messages. And so that's what, you know, what became one of the little mini missions of the of the boy crisis, even though the solution of the boy crisis, I found, was dad involvement. And, you know, all over the world in the 63 countries where boys are falling behind girls, there's two common denominators. One is where survival is reasonably mastered by the middle and upper middle class. The society starts allowing permission for divorce, and it allows permission for children to be born to moms without a father being involved. And as I looked at those two groups of children, the ones that were divorced that had an equal amount of father involvement, they did reasonably well. But the ones that had minimal or no father involvement after divorce, they did worse on more than 60 different measures, like the, the, you know, the suicide, the drug addictions, the addiction to video games, the ADHD. Those are all things that are deeply affected by a lack of dad involvement. Then I looked at the group of women who had children under 30 in the United States, 53% of women under 30 have children uh, without being married. And in that group of women... You said 53%, Warren, you said 53% of women under 30, 30 who have children have children without being married wow. in the United States, which is really amazing. It used to be about 2 to 3%. And you and I remember the days when, when the Moynihan Report came out. And at that point in time, the Moynihan Report discovered that, that the reason that, that African-Americans and other people in the inner city were having so many problems was because 25% of children grew up with minimal or no father involvement. And that was the first the discovery of the power of father involvement. But at that point in time, among Caucasian families, only 3% of children grew up with minimal or no father involvement. And so now 
Today, the figure for Caucasian families is over 30 percent. So it's higher than it used to be for African-American inner city families. And so what Moynihan was able to discover was that the issue was not that the children didn't do well because they were African-American. It was that the children didn't do well because they didn't have father involvement. And, you know, this is a man, uh, Moynihan, that served under both the Republican and Democratic administrations. And he had a Ph.D. in sociology and was a U.S. senator from New York, as you know. And so we discovered this, the essence of the importance of father involvement in 1965. And since then, in every single demographic, fathers have been less involved. And I guess my discovery in the boy crisis was seeing that of the 10 causes of the boy crisis, the single biggest one by far was that the children who had minimal or no dad involvement were the ones that were having the most problems. And so my next question became, what is it that dads do that is so different from what moms do that the children who do best have both this tension between what I call dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting? And what is there about dad-style parenting that is really that leads to children doing so much better? Now, there are some women who are going to take great offense at what you're saying, Warren, that in fact, you know, I do it well, I can do both, I have chosen to be a single mom. And by the way, of course, single moms don't always mean that they don't have partners. People who are not married often have partners in terms of lifestyle, but there must be people who are very angry at you. There are some, but people who read The Boy Crisis from beginning to end put all the pieces together and are almost never angry. I get almost no... I get no one, almost no one who has read the book itself that is angry. I do get people that have read bits and pieces and excerpts that you know write me nasty letters. But the great majority of moms recognize that they're over that they're overwhelmed between my marriages. I've been married for the past 25 years to a woman who has two children, and the women that I dated between the two marriages, almost all were moms who had children, and they all said they were all overwhelmed. They were all juggling. They were all working their rears off and their psyches off, trying to do the best for their children. They were working usually outside the home. They were working inside the home. They felt upset with themselves that they couldn't juggle everything effectively enough. And when people say to me, well, what, what did you help do about that? I said, you know, I, I hope I was a really good stepdad. But at the same time, I think the most important thing I did about it was to convince the father to get more involved with the children and to take the burden, not economically so much off of the woman who became my wife, but emotionally off and to, and to participate. And at that time, I didn't even know how important things like roughhousing were to the children. I, if somebody said to me, do you know that the more children and dads roughhouse, the more empathetic the children learn to be? And I'd go, I would have said, empathy comes from roughhousing? How so? And learn, children learning the difference between being assertive versus aggressive comes from roughhousing? How so? You know, and now I, I understand why, but it took me a lot of research to, to discover that things as counterintuitive as the increase in empathy and with the increase in roughhousing coexisted. So let me uh, go to some of the specifics in the book. One of them is the issue of male teachers. Can you talk about that for a while? Yes, we have a lot of um, children growing up in um, female-dominated homes uh, in which the mothers, by the way, you know, as, as I hope I made clear a minute ago, mothers are just overwhelmed and juggling and working very hard, being over-super people, if you will, to bring up their children as well as they possibly can. But the children, the boys especially, go from mother-dominated homes to female-dominated schools. And then they start searching for a role model, somebody that teaches, that can teach them how to be a male. And the first people that seem to have authority are oftentimes drug dealers and um, people who are uh, gang leaders. And this is very dangerous for boys because they're seeking out the most destructive type of personality types to lead them. And one of the things I discovered is that testosterone, when channeled well, is one of our, the world's most constructive forces. But testosterone, when channeled poorly or not channeled at all, leads to children doing very, very badly. And so one of the things that we need to do to correct this is to do two things. One is to make it apparent in this country that we need a balance of male and female teachers. And in those areas where there is a, a very high percentage of mother-only homes, that we need to have that 
to be a, at least maybe 60% uh, male teachers where there are 60-70% of females bringing up children in a, in a specific school district. And so male teachers um, give boys a constructive role model rather than a destructive role model and then are also more likely to champion the importance of vocational education. In Japan, for example, 25% of the children are in vocational education tracks and most of them graduate from that vocational education program and then 99.6% of them um, get jobs after that. In the United States, we've cut back on vocational education and one of the things that Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell warned about is that we have not kept up with vocational education to allow the people who are not academically inclined to be able to have a job and a career that fits in with the needs of technology. And so these boys often feel that they don't have any skill set. They therefore have no sense of purpose. They therefore oftentimes withdraw into video game addiction or porn addiction. And the video game and porn addiction often makes them feel very connected on one hand and disconnected and lonely and withdrawn on the other. And that often leads to depression that leads to the suicide that we talked about before, and boys who hurt, hurt us. That is, boys who hurt almost all the boys who commit mass shootings, more than 90%, are not only, the mass shootings are done not only by boys versus girls, but they're also done by um, boys who are dad-deprived. Our ISIS recruits, more than 90% dad-deprived. Our prisoners are not only 93% males, but of that 93% males, more than 90% of them are dad-deprived boys. And so you know, the larger question and point that you're getting to is that most people, when they see all this put together, realize that we're all, in the, we're all in the same boat here. Nobody wants our boys to be losing because we want our daughters to have somebody that's worthy of their love if, the, if our daughters are heterosexual, and our daughters deserve that. And again, we're all in the same family boat. If you've bought the, if you've bought the belief that men and women are oppressors versus oppressed, really take a look at the boy crisis and you'll find that you'll reconsider that perspective. Okay, so Warren Powell, should women who have children and are single moms out of choice feel guilty about doing that? No, but be careful. In other words, what you know as a single mom is we want women to have the freedom to be able to do what they want to do. But when you make a free choice to become a single mom, it is really important to look at the following, at the fact that that the boy is likely to not, that boys in the past used to have a sense of purpose that the society made very clear, which was to be willing to die at the next war and to be willing to do anything you needed to be to be the sole breadwinner. That sense of purpose is being experienced as a purpose void. When a boy has a purpose void and then a dad void, he usually has an enormous inability to have postponed gratification because part of what dads tend to contribute to the raising of children is boundary enforcement, requiring the boys to do what they do not want to do and requiring girls to do what they do not want to do, like finish their peas before they get their ice cream. And that boundary enforcement creates postponed gratification that is a very important ingredient in a boy being able to be successful and in a girl being able to be successful. So before you enter into being a single mom, understand a few things. That What we now know that we didn't know before is that moms and dads have different styles of parenting. Moms are, tend to be much more protective, much more nurturing, have sort of their unconditional love is right out front. Men's unconditional love is more like, you know, sweetie. It's unconditional love, but it's mixed with conditional approval of saying to your son, no, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. And when the son tries to manipulate a better deal or the daughter tries to manipulate a better deal by having a small number of peas before they get their ice cream, uh, moms will usually say, I don't want to get into a big argument over a few peas. So, okay, sweetie, take a few more peas and then you could have your ice cream. Whereas dads are far more likely to say, sorry, you need to finish your peas before you have your ice cream. And therefore, the boys tend to, and the girls, 
tend to focus much more on being able to finish what they need to do in order to get what they want to do. So if you're contemplating being a single mom, you have to understand that there's a lot of differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting, and that you need to know what those differences are to be able to do the boundary enforcement and the encouragement of children to do things that are uncomfortable for them and to roughhouse with them and to do things like that. But even if you do, most of what we now know that we didn't know before is that you will work extremely hard to raise those children and still be able to economically support them. And the children are much more likely to have problems in more than 70 different areas. And so this is stuff we didn't know. And this is you know, the reason I felt so energized and sad and you know, felt I had a mission to bring out the boy crisis was because I was discovering these things by myself in the last 15 years of research. And it was happening all around me. I had my own experience of it as I was dating many mothers that were working so hard. So the other dimension of what you said before that's very important is that many mothers who are under 30 who have children are living with a dad and they feel, okay, so what's the difference between living with and getting married? And here's the difference, that, that the father is only in 40% of the cases when a mother and father are living together but not married, in 40% of the cases the father is minimally involved or not involved at all after three and a half years. So without the moral considerations or anything else, uh, we now know that the marriage does tend to keep the glue of the mother and the father together in the family, even though the mother and father need to know how to communicate to make that marriage happy. And I think you know that up at um, Omega Institute in May, I'm doing workshops on couples communication because I found that you know if I want to eliminate or minimize the boy crisis, I have to try to help minimize divorces. And if I want to minimize divorces, I have to help mothers and fathers know how to communicate with each other. And if I want to teach mothers and fathers to communicate effectively together, the single biggest problem in male-female communication and in male-male and female-female communication is our inability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive. And so part of the emphasis of my couples workshops are to teach people to be able to emotionally associate their partner's concerns and criticisms with an opportunity to be more deeply loved by their partner. I could go in a thousand different directions here. Yes. But but, but but let me ask you this. Are you saying, I mean, the old morality was that, you know, people should be married and all the rest of it. Are you saying that by not being married, a couple is basically creating an identity crisis for the boy? Well, that is a bit of a jump, but it's not an incorrect jump. Um, certainly the purpose of not being married and, um, when people have children is almost no one knows that that is the likely outcome. And the identity crisis is not just for the boys, by the way, but it's, it's for the girls. And I, may, I don't know that I would call it. It is ultimately an identity crisis, but what is part of it is that, um, as I was mentioning before, it's, it's so many things that we didn't know in, in the past. I was giving you the example of roughhousing, and let me just share the dynamic of, of that because maybe this will illustrate what, what is really going on in creating the crisis. Um, you know, a dad will tend to sort of roughhouse. Let's say he has three children, and he, he throws all three children on the couch, and he says, okay, you guys, you know, ju you jump on my back, and, and you see if, if you can pin me down before I pin you down. And mom is watching, and she's thinking, oh, my God. She feels like, I just have one more child to monitor here, Dad. And and then she says, but, you know, I don't want to be controlling. I don't want to interfere. Um, so they see the kids seem to be having fun. But I just know, I just know in the back of my mind that sooner or later somebody's going to start crying or somebody's going to get hurt. And she's only about 99.99% likely to be right. And so sooner or later, the, you know, one of the kids ends up crying or getting hurt. And so mom's thinking to herself, okay, finally dad will learn. Um, he'll stop the roughhousing. But dad says, you know, sweetie, uh, you can't put your, you know, your elbow in your sister's um, you know, face anymore. That's not an okay of, of becoming the, the king or the queen of the kingpinners to pin me down. And so you, you've got to not do that. And if you don't do that, uh, there'll be no more roughhousing for tonight. 
And so then and the, the kids go, okay, okay, Dad, I got it, I got it. So then the dad returns to the roughhousing to see if the kids can experience what psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. And the kids try to do that for a few seconds, but then they get so caught up in the roughhousing that they forget to do that. And so then they go back to you know pushing the other ones inappropriately aside. And Dad says, nope, you can't do it that way. You have to do it only this way. You can you can fake me out. You can do this, but you can't. You you know, push your brother or your sister aside like that. So the kids go, oh, yeah, no, no, Dad, okay, we got it now, we got it now. And Dad goes, no, no more roughhousing until tomorrow night. And Mom is sitting there watching. Wait a minute, you are gonna, you sent them back to doing the roughhousing. The problem recreated itself, and now you're going to promise to do roughhousing tomorrow night? You must be a kid I have to monitor. But the next night, when Dad says, you can't put your elbow in, the, in your sister's face, they know that if they do do that, they're going to lose what they want, which is the roughhousing. So now the mandate or the instruction by the parent to not do something that's inappropriate becomes a, an instruction that the kids know they're going to lose something if they don't, and they're going to lose what they want if they don't follow that instruction. But, but Warren, my, my daughter, who's a PhD and very smart professor, I've seen her roughhouse with the kids, so aren't you suggesting, and you know, she has a wonderful partner who does roughhouse with the kids, aren't you suggesting that females never do that? I am not suggesting that females never, never do that. There's no male or female behavior that is not done, you know, it's, it's a, as you know, two bell curves that overlap with each other, and men are far more likely to roughhouse than moms are, but moms can roughhouse, mm-hmm. and moms can enforce boundaries, and moms can push kids outside of their comfort zone. They can coach kids and soccer games and so on. Moms can do you know, virtually everything that dads can do, except for one thing that I'll get to in a moment, but they're much less likely to do that, just as dads are much less likely to do mom-style parenting. So what we know now is that the children who do best are ones that don't have dad-style parenting only or mom-style parenting only, but what I call checks and balance parenting. And the importance of knowing that is very crucial to the salvation of a a good relationship, which is oftentimes mothers and fathers will argue with each other as if my style, no roughhousing, was better than your style, roughhousing, or vice versa. But in fact, the children do best when they get the protection of the, the likelihood of the mom doing the greater amount of protection and the likelihood of the dad doing greater amount of risk-taking. So if the child says, you know, can I climb the tree? And mom says, no, sweetie, in a couple of years you can climb, but not now. You, it's too dangerous for you. And dad says, yes, you can climb the tree, but be careful. And dad and mom have a big discussion about that, and they end up with a decision to, well, you can climb the tree, but not past this area. And dad, you've got to be out underneath the tree. And by the way, give me your cell phone. And so the child gets what we didn't know was happening before, that when the children climb that tree and take those risks, they're actually increasing their IQ. They're increasing their psychomotor functioning, and they're, they're learning what risks to take and what risks not to take. And when the mother and father are negotiating that, the children tend to get the best of both worlds in what I call checks and balance parenting, neither a domination of the male style or a domination of the female style parenting. There's one thing I said that boys do not get and that and this differentiates boys from girls being that the the girls in a single mom family have a female as a role model the boys in a single mom family do not have a male as a role model and that seems to lead to boys as they grow up, they look in the mirror and they see that half of them is the dad. You know, their body language is like their dad's. Their eyes are like their dad's. Their hair is like their dad's. And they feel like, why did my dad abandon me? Who am I? It's like um, one of our daughters is a, an adopted daughter. And we had a rancher over who, had, who talked to us about ducks being raised by a chicken because the mother and father duck were killed. And one day the ducks went down the hill, jumped in a lake, and the, you know, the adoptive parent just went berserk. And my adopted daughter looked up and she said, that's the way I feel. Like, I feel like I'm a, a duck being raised by a chicken. 
And so the boy that's being raised by a mom only is looking in that mirror and saying, you know, who am I? And so that's what seems to create a lot of the rudderlessness, despite the fact that adoptive parents and the single mom are usually highly loving, usually devoted, and and very, very caring. Okay. So Warren Farrell, let me ask you about this. You mentioned that we need more teachers in the classroom, male teachers. How do you do that? How do you achieve that? I think as we did with the Peace Corps, with you know, Sergeant Shriver, beginning to say we need males to be teachers in the classroom. This may require scholarships. It may require affirmative action programs. It may require many of the things that we did to help women get into the STEM professions and allow teachers to be seen as our future heroes. Also the same type of thing with father training. We need to be training our sons and our daughters in first and second grade to learn how to communicate. We need to be training our sons to be seeing fathers as the new type of warrior. Call young men who are training to be caring and loving men, call them father warriors. Boys respond, and as do girls, to encouragement to do what the society honors them for doing. Uh, we got boys to be willing to die to be called a hero. That's a social bribe to die. Well, so we, we were able to get boys to die for us, to save us and help us live longer. I think we'll be able to get boys to love for us and love as fathers and love as teachers okay. if we reward them. Okay, but Warren, I mean, if you're going to start saying to males, we want you in the classroom, that's fine. I, I much appreciate that. But if you do that to the exclusion of women, don't you create the same old thing that the Me Too movement is talking about? Discrimination? No. First of all, I would never want to include fathers in the classroom to the exclusion of, of women. I think we well, 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 but, 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 but Warren, if you get more males and you have a set number of positions and you say we want males, which is you're making the case for, you are also obviously tilting the scale. Oh, I think we'll find that our children will do very well, better, when there's a balance between males and females. And yes, you know, just like we feel like there's a, our corporations do better when there's a balance between women and men on the board. Getting more women into positions will mean fewer men in certain areas and vice versa. But what we all want is the same thing. We all want our children to do better. And rather than arguing, uh, you know, we have uh, 50 teachers in a school and saying, and right now there's 95 females and, and five, or there are 45 uh, females and five males, rather than worrying about what the percentage of males versus females are from a who's excluded and who's included basis, we ask a different question. And that is, how will our children do best? Because when our children do best, when our boys are out there with purpose, getting jobs, they're less likely to be criminals. They're less likely to be ISIS recruits. They're less likely to be shooting up our schools and are doing the mass shootings. These are the things we know now that we didn't know before and that we need to respond to by saying, we want the best outcome for our children. We now have the data to know what creates that. One of those pieces of data would be to have a, an equal number of men and women as teachers. Okay. okay, now what about, and you make a point of this in your book, what about staying home? You know, moms often stay home, dads go out to work. Do you want that to be addressed? I do. I think part of what we need to encourage is um, for our daughters who are prone towards, we, you know, our daughters now when they're pregnant usually generate three options. Option one is to raise children, option two is to raise money, and option three is to do some combination of both. We often have our sons now when they are married to that woman who's raising the children sitting by and thinking, well, I'll wait to see what my wife chooses to decide what role I'll take. But basically he has three options also. Option one is work full-time. Option two is work full-time. Option three is work full-time. And so, he, um, and, you know, of course, if he's a working-class man, that may mean work two jobs. And if he's you know, a white-collar worker, that means putting, oftentimes putting more hours into the work. And so the father experiences what I call a father's catch-22. He learns to love the family by being away from the love of the family. When, in fact, many women say to me, you know, I want to be a have-it-all woman. And people say, well, you can't be a have-it-all woman, or it's discrimination that you can't be. And I disagree with both. I think you can be a have-it-all woman. If you want to be a have-it-all woman, focus on your career and choose a man who is comfortable staying at home 
with the children. And what makes a man comfortable staying home with the children, for the most part, is A, the type of man, and 49% of full-time working men, the Pew Research Center has found, 49% of full-time working men say they would rather be home with the children full-time, but they feel they need to be the ones earning the money. And so there's a huge opportunity for women to be have-it-all women if they choose the type of man who is a nurturing, connected man, and they respect him. Because if they don't respect him, and they're looking at him like, I'm earning more money than you are, I'm superior to you, mm. then the relationship falls apart. That's you know the hard data on that. Well, very interesting. Now, since this book has come out, I take it there have been some reviews, and I have a feeling that there must be a few people who aren't happy with you. Is that correct? Well, most of the reviews are good. Even Arlie Hochschild, who reviewed the, the Boy Crisis for the New York Review of Books, and she's a very strong feminist, and she um, gave it quite a positive review. There's this huge gap, and, you, and you, you put your finger on it, between people who read the Boy Crisis in full and sort of see all the pieces fitting together and someone that just picks a little piece of it apart and says, okay, this must mean single moms aren't good or something along those lines, when in fact the full story is that we have new information now about how to raise our children the best. And we, I believe that mothers are extremely well-intended and extraordinarily hardworking, and they want the best for their children. And mothers are as likely or more likely than fathers to do reading of these issues. And so that we really have an opportunity now to raise our children more effectively. And I don't know a, a mother, a single mother or a married mother, who doesn't want that for her children. Warren Farrell, how do we know whether or not there is an intellectual gap in terms of these expectations that fathers think of themselves as, mothers think of themselves are, because, you know, I still see marriages in which the father is expected to produce, and if he wants to stay home, in some cases he's seen as a failure. At what point do we bring things back to where you would like to see them? Well, first of all, you're exactly on target, and this is the social discrimination that we really need to face. When men go into parks and they're single dads and they're full, you know, full-time dads and the mothers are off uh, maybe earning a very good living and taking care of the financial part of the, of the raising of the children, the fathers report that they're often looked at as like, what's wrong with you? And when they go to a party, somebody asks, what do you do? And they say, oh, I'm a full-time dad. Everybody goes, oh, that's really sweet. That's really nice. But if they're divorced and they're raising the children full-time and they're not working outside the home and they're getting child support, which is very, very rare, by the way, but in the small percentage where that happens, those fathers feel like they're really ostracized. And so we have to change our attitude about that. We have to know that if women are saying, oh, I want to be a top-level performer, and I want to succeed in a career or be president of the United States or U.S. senator. I'm therefore looking for a man who is caring, loving, sensitive, nurturing, but also a, still a man. I mean, it's energy. And those men, she will be able to find them. Right now, those men do not feel like they will be respected and they don't feel like they'll be selected. And we haven't, as a society, been honoring men to do that. And so when we honor men to do anything, they respect to what they're being honored to do, and we will, we will achieve the male teachers and the male fathers that you, as very rightly pointed out, are not very much honored today. You, you wrote another book called Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say. What did that mean? This really ties perfectly into what we're talking about here. When I wrote Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, I basically said, guys, you have not been doing your homework. You're the ones that have to read up about how your style of parenting, the types of things like roughhousing and boundary enforcement and creating postponed gratification, these things are necessary for our children to have. In the past, we just had this as part of mothers and fathers being together, but you need to read up and find out what is the value and the connection between children being more empathetic when they're learning to roughhouse and being more assertive but not aggressive and therefore having more friends and therefore being less likely to be depressed. 
You need to read up about this, and you need to lovingly explain to your wife, here's what the roughhousing creates. It's not just me being another kid and being unconscious. Here's why I enforce the boundaries. Here's why I go back and give the kids another chance. And then you also need to listen to your wife about what her perspectives are and her fears are about what's going too far and negotiate with her for every situation. Is this a situation where the child can climb higher in that tree um, without being uh, having too much uh, risk to his or her life? Um, or is this a, a, a situation where that child needs to stay out of the tree altogether or whatever? And so this checks and balance parenting has to be something that dads take responsibility for saying to moms, and that you can't blame moms for not hearing what dads don't say. And so I'm trying to say in the Boy Crisis book, dads, you have a new role for the future. And that new role for the future is to be a fully involved dad and to communicate with moms the value of your different styles. And when you go into schools as male teachers, you shouldn't just become imitation female teachers any more than women in the workplace should be imitation males. You should bring your unique values and perspectives to the school community, just like women should bring their unique values and perspectives to the corporate community. Now, Warren, uh, let's face it. In every marriage, the dynamics are different. Tensions exist, obviously, between mothers and fathers and who gets to say what, right? Uh, Absolutely. And therefore, when you basically lecture women or men on listening to the other one, that's easy for you to say, but it doesn't involve the character that it often exists in these marriages, if you're following me. I do, and that's exactly why I ended up doing the couples communication courses around the country, because pretty much any time you say anything, what, what I found was that when men and women talk to each other, they oftentimes were self-listening. They were listening to themselves begin to build a response to the, what the other person was saying. And they had you know, about a dozen different types of styles of defenses that they used. And I found that we're biologically programmed to become defensive when we hear criticism from a loved one, especially when it's given badly. And pretty much everybody feels that any criticism given by a loved one is given badly. So I started to develop a workaround to our biologically natural defensiveness you know, in May, I'm doing this couples communication workshop at the Omega Institute. So and, what's the workaround? Uh, the workaround is challenging. So to give you a, a quick understanding of it, first, I create 166 hours out of the 168 hours a week as a conflict-free zone. And I teach couples how to sustain that conflict-free zone, even when a criticism or a sarcastic remark comes up during the week. And so then in the two hours that are left, the, I call a caring and sharing time, I say because because hearing personal criticism from your loved one, the biologically natural response is to become defensive. You first have to sit down and alter your biologically natural response by meditating into an altered set of mindsets. And so then I teach what those mindsets are. So, for example, almost every man in the workshop says he would be willing to take a 50% chance of risking his life and dying to save his partner's life. About 85% of the women say they would do the same if there were no children involved. And so most of the people, most of the couples are sitting next to somebody who would be willing to die for them. So then I help them understand that if you're willing to die for your partner, you at least maybe care enough to listen to your partner. And by the way, if you do listen to your partner, your partner will feel that they have a safety, a type of safety in being able to say whatever they wish to say in whatever style they wish to say it. And if you do that, the outcome is your partner will feel more loved by you and therefore more love for you. So this is just two of six of the meditations, and it's all built on things that we do in the workshop to prepare for those meditations. And at the end of that process... That couple, that man or woman who's listening to their partner doing criticism of them, is for a short period of time, notice I said short period of time, able to handle virtually anything their partner wants to share with them, which then begins to make their partner feel so safe that they start discovering thoughts that they didn't even know they were thinking because they, on some level, knew it wasn't safe to think it and say it, so therefore they just kept it to themselves and repressed it and went drinking instead or escaping from intimacy in different ways instead. And so it's that process, and then I create tools that they can use 
after the, the couple's workshop for the rest of their life, and then I do free follow-up phone calls with the couples in the uh, Omega group or wherever, where we go over all the stumbling blocks that they run into and hear the successes that the other people have. So, I mean, that's where I ended up. So it was like, you know, if the boy crisis is being caused in divorced families, how do I prevent the divorce to begin with? And the core thing was the inability to hear personal criticism without being defensive, then I had to work on that. And so it took me about eight or 10 years to be able to develop that in a way that I feel really good about. Well, you know, uh, Freud said character was set by the time we were four. I've always believed in that. I believe that mates have characters. I don't think that by listening to Warren Farrell, it's necessarily so that they're going to behave in a different way than they behaved all their adult lives. I mean, I've been married for 49 years. That's a lot of time. And, you know, I've learned successful strategies for listening. Yes, yes, absolutely. And first of all, if I were to do a couple's workshop in which I talk to people about what they need to do, the percentage of likelihood for success would probably be zero to one percent. And the one percent that was successful would probably have been well prepared for it before, just because of what you just said. What I give people is a tool that they can exercise for a short period of time during their week and some other tools that they can exercise, all of which are in the capability of almost any character, you know, short of somebody that's, you know, borderline personality or, you know, significant mental health problem. So those couples are able to use that for an hour or two a week. And they also learn to do things like what I call the art and discipline of appreciating each other. Most people appreciate each other in very general ways. And like you're a great mother, you're a great cook. And so I teach people how to be much more specific with their appreciation. Like, you know, I really appreciate the way that the um, skin on that turkey was made so crisp and the way that you have sage and parsley and what is the other spice that you put in the in the dressing and, and how did you make that dressing so moist. So it's, it's catching your partner doing things well in ways that are so specific that your partner really sees that you have seen them. And that tends to build the reservoir of love, being appreciated like that. And that building of the reservoir of love allows a little bit more margin for error when you screw things up by not listening as well. We've been talking to professor and author Dr. Warren Farrell. His latest book is The Boy Crisis with co-author John Gray. You can find out more at www.warrenfarrell, and you spell that W-A-R-R-E-N, no spaces, Farrell, F-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. We've been delighted, Warren, to get together with you after all of these years. It's great fun, and I'm sure people will react to this one way or the other. Again, thank you for being here. It's just been a total pleasure reconnecting with you, Alan, and I look forward to the response to it, and let's keep communicating. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. <music>